this comes full circle because now the reality where we are is that our planet and our, well, not our planet, but for us living on our planet, literally now is at stake. And that movement that's been around for 50 years now, which is now predominantly white, doesn't have the capacity, never did have the capacity, because you need a movement that has everybody in it, black, white, brown, red, male, female, straight, gay, theist, atheist, human. You need a human movement to take on this battle to fight for our planet. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. What's up, family? This Humanized team is back again. And um, we're so excited because we have Reverend Yearwood here today on Humanized to talk about so many things, mainly based in justice. And so you already know we're on the same page with our walk towards freedom and uh, and, and equity for all. So, uh, Emily, let's just get right to it because I'm so excited. I'm about to jump out of these seats right now. So, yeah. <laughs> First of all, welcome, Reverend Yearwood. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really glad to be here. Awesome. Thank you. So for folks who might be being introduced to the Rev for the first time, so let me just tell you who he is, and we're going to be focusing on climate justice today. I'm so thrilled about this. So he is the president and founder of the Hip Hop Caucus. He's a minister, community activist, U.S. Air Force veteran, and probably one of the most influential people in hip hop political life. So he entered the world of hip hop politics as a key architect in P. Diddy's vote or die campaign in the run up to the 2004 presidential election. From there, he went on to found the Hip Hop Caucus. And the goal of the caucus, we're going to hear a lot more from him on this, is to build a powerful and sustainable organization for the culture's role in civic process and empowerment of communities impacted first and worst by injustice. So he's a national leader in the green movement, um, and he's been working for years successfully bridging the gap between communities of color and environmental issue advocacy. So he has been fighting on the front lines for vulnerable communities, including at the international climate negotiations in Paris and in efforts to fight new oil pipeline developments in Maryland and Standing Rock. He has received numerous awards for his work, including being dubbed as the new green hero by Rolling Stone and recognized by the Obama White House as the champion of change. So folks, he is no joke, and we are so honored to have you. Thank you. So so I guess it is good to say that you you you, you about that life, huh? I guess it's good to say <laughs> yeah, you about well, no, that life. No, definitely, definitely willing to fight for the people. That's for sure. That <laughs> is for sure. Yes, indeed. So we usually love to hear kind of, you know, one of the things we want to do is to, to humanize everyone's position in, in social justice. And so I'd love just to hear from you, you know, 
about your life and and what turns it it took that that led you into this this position in the green movement and what keeps the fire alive for you yeah no well again thanks for having me and i yeah. feel like i got into the green movement like one of those comic book kind of villains actually um <laughs> in some aspect um if you've ever seen black panther you know, it was actually, I guess it was a, it was a Killmonger. It was a Killmonger, right? Yep. Yeah, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, he, he was born into this process. He was born in this process in Black Panther through pain. And so for me, mm. it was the same way. It's like mm. um, I was in Washington, D.C. Uh, when Hurricane Katrina hit, but I'm originally from Louisiana. And so I had to witness watching... Um, my family and friends um, drowned on national TV and then literally had to then watch as people would just left them there to die. So like literally the inconvenient truth for me wasn't just the climate crisis, but the inconvenient truth was also white supremacy. And so that kind of just for me, you know, like that, those comic book folks who just get like turned by that event. That's kind of like me just watching that. I was like, I'm going to just commit the rest of my life to fighting literally for my people. um, So they don't Mm. ever have to experience that again. And so that Mm. was, so that was the beginnings. And then, I mean, I was fortunate that I was uh, at that time, the president of hip hop caucus. So I could use the resources to kind Mm. of just do all we could do immediately. Um, to fight for Katrina survivors. But Mm. it didn't stop there because then once we began to get into the movement itself, the larger, I guess, environmental movement, you know, we were, we we learned a lot of things. We learned that um, they were very preoccupied with polar bears. Now, I had nothing against polar bears, but they were really, (laughs) really, really caught up in what happened to the polar bears and, and not what's going on in seventh or ninth ward in New Orleans. And so yeah. the, the focus for me was more about uh, the people more than mm. the polar bears. Again, love polar mm. bears, uh, nothing against polar bears, but uh, but definitely the people is where my, my, my allegiance took off. And so that, yeah. And so I think from there, that was literally um, 15, now 15 and a half years ago in that experience. And I've been... Uh, I've been every single day since I've been I've been fighting to fight simply so that particularly black people wouldn't drown in the richest country of the world. Mm. Wow. I um I'm be honest, I love seeing a black leader addressing climate change, you know, from a civil activist standpoint, you know, as such as um a, a very important thing because when you address poverty. But a lot of times we 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 like don't think of it from a climate and environmental standpoint. When we have um, ghettos that we have um, just poor housing, you know, um, and all of the things that affect us. We have communities being built, um, and and uh, in certain areas we don't we're not taught to recycle and we're not taught to do things like that because again we're trying to survive. So. Of telling a person who's living in poverty to recycle is is ridiculous, you know. And so for you yeah. to address that, you know, um, it's a very very powerful thing because traditionally, hip hop is not focused on 
climate, you know? But hip hop is a reflection of what's going on. It's painting a picture of what's going on in inner cities. And I guess that is overlooked. And so for you to be bringing that light to those issues that that goes hand in hand, poverty, gun violence, sexual abuse, all of these things that are are painted as pictures in the life of hip hop, that's huge. Um, so so big up to that, man. I, I really appreciate that because yeah. I, I find myself doing the same thing when it comes to medicine, um, using the me- medicine as a way to address poverty, um, to let you know that you can't escape poverty if you don't have access to, to consistent quality health care. So, um, yes, that's super that's super villain um, metaphor. That's dope, bro. That's dope. No, like no, it. no. Thank you. I mean, it's it's, it's uh, well, a couple of things there. One. I think that the the recycling and reusing and reduce part of the process is very, very important. But Mm -hmm. what we are now learning more and more is that the extractive mentality that created the climate crisis is exactly right in our DNA, particularly as Black people, but also for people of color, Black, Brown, Indigenous, and people of color. We see that from the beginnings of when Black people were extracted from the motherland and from the continent, and they were extracted and brought over for financial gain, no matter what that did to the people mm-hmm. or to that community. Mm-hmm. And so that same extractive mentality of digging in the ground when you have other ways of getting energy, other ways of powering your resources, even despite that all agree, that extractive mentality that rips people from their land and, and it enslaves them is that ex- same extractive mentality with, within the fossil fuel industry. That's the same mentality. Oh, wow. So, mm-hmm. so you have to understand that I, I, I actually a lot of young folk around at the caucus. They say that it's not just about environmental justice; it's about environmental liberation. And so, when you think mm-hmm. about it from that standpoint, um, you kind of understand that this this has been going on for quite some while. And then we, I mean, I'm sure we get into literally why we did get into the reuse, recycle, reduce mentality, where that kind of came from um, with the modern environmental movement. But I think that the movement today is getting back to the, the human aspect of this movement. Um, and then also for your hip hop point, you know, hip hop actually, believe it or not, hip hop was pretty much started by issues really close to environmental justice. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, it actually Tell us was, more about that. Yeah, yeah. no, nah, hip-hop was really started because of transportation justice. So hip-hop was started in the Bronx, mm-hmm. and when it was uh-huh. started, they built, they was, they was building highways. Highways are critical as far as dividing communities, but also are uh-huh. horrible in regards to environmental justice from pollution and every aspect. But they mm-hmm. built the Bronx Causeway, which actually divided the Bronx, which actually then created redlining. In the building of the mm. Bronx Callways, which created the redlining, which then created environmental justice, it was in that moment wow. that people who were divided began to speak out about their condition. So actually, yeah. if it really wasn't huh. for transportation justice and environmental justice, there actually wouldn't be hip-hop because it is actually Gross. in that moment that actually creates the young people and people in those communities to speak out and speak truth to power. Real shit. Oh, Thank wow. you. Thank you. Wow, that's such an interesting intersection of voice and uh, environmentalism and expression. Uh, wow. And I love on your um, 
your Instagram um, description, you say, we can use our cultural expression to shape our political experience. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, well, that's just a way of creating change. So we, with the way mm-hmm. that we work at the Hip Hop Caucus and and how we use uh, hip hop is that we use our cultural expression to shape our political experience, meaning um, that we use the arts, music, dance. Um, we use all of that um, as a means of really communication. It's probably more so a means of communication um, and expression. So that, and also a way to kind of also to maintain, because if you are an artist, if you are a painter, if you are a dancer, and you are in that regard, it helps you to not only alleviate the stress of the moment, um, but it also allows you to tell the story. And sometimes Mm. I think a lot of folks try to tell the story just through the academy, which is cool. Nothing nothing wrong with the academy. But sometimes (laughs) we, we, we do everything through the academy. Um, and then we miss, we miss the other aspects of how to communicate. And so we actually miss the genius outside the academy who are actually mm-hmm. able to then connect certain things because they actually may not have gone and maybe do a thesis or put together their, whatever they're, right. whatever they're putting together, but they can put together um, lyrics or they can put together art or they can put together just things. And so they express their anger, their frustration. They express when their humanity is being threatened. And so mm. it's it's in that that that's expressed through their their cultural expression. But it's in that then that then how do we then take that cultural expression? How do we take what's being expressed maybe very organically and then use it to create political change? And that's what that's what we do. Do you think it's the obligation of uh, of a hip hop artist as a leader to be at the forefront or even in the conversation? when it comes to um, political power, political change, um, liberation, is it our responsibility, given that they have a platform that um, culturally individuals of color, uh, we, we love to, to, to be a part of the arts um, expression, um, it's in our DNA to move, to be affected by music and, 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 and spoken word and art. So do you think it's an obligation of, of artists to be in that fight or should they just make that choice what what is your thoughts on that yeah i don't think it's an obligation per se i think artists i think everyone has to evolve i do think it helps them as an artist to be the the best artist they can be i think that if you are not connected Mm. to something um then it doesn't help you to grow it doesn't help whatever you're trying to say or do communicate i've just seen when artists connect themselves um into literally the, the DNA of the movement, um, you see artists grow tremendously. I've seen that over and over again. You see artists expand. And I, and I understand when artists come from oppression, it is very difficult to come out of oppression sometimes and be free. Because I think you're asking someone who has been oppressed, who's gone through all of the things that systemic racism and violence has pushed people down to then be free. It's something amazing then when that person begins to evolve. And I've seen that mm. so many different times um, in artists um, and watching, watching them evolve. I've also seen artists evolve backwards. I've seen some artists who I think come into this process only to be conscious and then they forget about struggle. Um, meaning that their, their whole agenda is just to raise up what is going wrong but they forget to raise up what's also 
their humanity, their just what's what's real. So they begin to uh, they begin to look down upon, and you and you can't do that. The minute you begin to look down upon the ones you are in solidarity with, because it's important, not not charity, the ones you are in solidarity with, mm-hmm. then then your art or your music changes. So obligation, no, but. Will it make you a better artist, which is hopefully your goal? Yes. If you want to be the best artist you can be, then it is it behooves you to be connected into the struggle. And I actually believe this. I think artists, musicians, artists, painters hear things differently. So I think that artists and musicians hear in just like a dog whistle. They actually can hear it before politicians can hear it mm. in some cases. And I think that's what makes a lot of artists actually, and if, they, if they're not able to express it, I think it makes it literally makes you go crazy. If you're not able mm-hmm. to talk about the injustice you see, either through your poetry, your music, your dance, your art, your fashion, and you're, and you're holding it in, it, it's, like, it's like it gets backed up and then, and, and then you, you explode. And I think that for yeah. artists, you have to release it. And so if you're not releasing that, then it actually will consume you as an artist. And so I think it's yeah. it's important for artists to be able to show what they're feeling inside. And it could be, it may, it may, it may be whatever they're feeling. It could be, but but it's artists have to release. If not, artists are just very unique people. Because if they don't release it, then that causes them to then harm themselves sometimes. They become they begin to do a lot of different things that I think are not healthy for themselves. Yeah. This wow. is <laughs> this that is so such a valuable piece of information for me on a totally unrelated topic because I have a five year old who is definitely an artistic type and I am not. And she, I've been wondering like how do I support her more because she her her creativity is so like needing to be harnessed and I I've, yeah. I haven't thought about like what happens if it's not allowed to express, because we've been working on emotional regulation with her. And so just thank you. That was a unexpected slice of insight from this. <laughs> so thank no, you. No, definitely. Can you say more about, um, I guess it's about positionality. You mentioned solidarity versus charity in being part of a movement. Can you say more about that and the importance of positionality? Yeah, definitely. So I think when you're approaching a problem, you have to see yourself as not outside the problem that you're trying to fix. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times we, we approach problems in a way in which we're here to help. And we're, for instance, if you're going into a community and say, I'm here to help community X. And I'm, but but you can always leave the community. You're not really there. You're just really staying at the Holiday Inn, and and, yeah. and you can then you can pack up after three or four days and go back to where you live, which is very very different. That's a nice gesture. Thank you for coming. But that's charity. When you live in that community and you're facing the consequences of whatever you're facing, if it's the climate crisis, if it's if it's violence, if it's if it's poverty, whatever it may be, if it's state-sanctioned police brutality, whatever the, whatever it may, you may be dealing with, and you're there, then your survival is connected to your sister and brother. 
And that changes how you fight and how you approach things. It's like in your home, if your house is on fire and you try to get everybody out your house, then everybody's survival is dependent on one another. As nice as it may be on the outside, if you're pouring water on the house, you have a different perspective if you're inside the burning house. And so yeah. I think that your position in the movement and how you approach this must be seen as a position of, you can't, to me, you can't do this work if you're positioned from the outside looking mm-hmm. in. You can help, mm-hmm. it's nice, but you really can't create the change, particularly when you're dealing with, in my situation, enemies like the fossil fuel industry, who right. literally their business plan means a death sentence for my community. Mm-hmm. And so, so when you have that, you can't be, you can't approach enemies like that in a very haphazard, laissez-faire, I can leave during spring break, I can go to the Hamptons kind of mentality. You have mm-hmm. to be in this day in and day out. You have to go to sleep and get up knowing your enemy is constantly trying to destroy you and your community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, brother. Yo, you're preaching to my soul right now. Because it, when, when you when you are part of the problem that you're trying to address, there's a different sense of urgency, you know? And um, I, the reason I, I laugh like that and smile like that is because I am over the moon right now with yes. Like if we were in church, I'm dancing down the aisle right now. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm like going crazy because solidarity is the only way for me to uh, achieve liberation for the community that I serve, you know, and come from that. And now our planet. And now yeah, yeah, yeah. This is is the only planet we got. So so that's that's the irony to this is that Uh we need all of us. Yes, yeah. Right. Wow. You you, you spoke earlier about poverty and the marketing. And I always say poverty is marketed as a struggle Um, for some individuals. It's profitable. You know, instead of it being as a great place that births creativity, you know, most of the individuals that come from poverty, if they are are, are big and we remember them, is, is because during the time they had no other option but to be successful. And so, under that kind of sense of urgency, under that kind of stress, like we say in the hush, pressure busts pipes. You know, like when you under that kind of stress, you have nothing but to be successful or else you said it before life or death you know so when we talking about tupac biggie kanye like all these individuals who are culture shifters in the hip-hop game you know like who knows what type of hip-hop um community would have had if biggs and, and pac was still living today because they would have evolved like you spoke of earlier because big was trying to be more of an entrepreneur closer to his death you know, and so we 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 live in communities where we have to speak upon what we see, and people love that. They love to to be distracted by the movie that is poverty. You know, and so let's let's watch let's watch that. And so now, as a like you said, as a musician grows, he starts to see that I can be bigger than this, and I can affect change, and I can also put back into my community. That's a powerful evolution that can um that that you are a part of. So. I appreciate that, man. Could you speak on like who you've worked with in that in that industry and saw that evolution? If you have the change from one type of artist 
to not even to another type, but just to a better version of themselves. Yeah. Well, first let me say this in regards to the poverty and just the, that element that, yes, poverty allows for many to become amazing diamonds. And so there are those who I've been around and I've seen them survive. And for instance, Jay-Z is a good example, right? So I worked with Jay-Z on his first voting campaign, Voice Your Choice, which was interesting because this was back in 2004. And so when we did that campaign, he was clearly not where he is now, as far as mentally or where he is, how he has evolved in some aspects. And I, I mean, say, I, I'm not saying that I agree with everything, me and Daisy, I mean, we, we have maybe different, a lot of different philosophies, but just the standpoint for this story, I'll just say that we could, we work together and you know, obviously we, we know each other. The story here is more so based around just watching him grow around democracy, right? Mm-hmm. And so, because what we were trying to do, we were trying to get out the vote. And at the time, um, he actually was working with Reebok. <laughs> it's crazy. He was working with Reebok. Reebok was the shoe he was working with. And they actually created a shoe that was called Voice Your Choice. And it was like, it was a red, white, and blue Reebok. It was, it was, it was crazy. I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure he still works with Reebok. I'm sure he doesn't. But, um, but the, the, the thing behind that was this, was when he did that, a lot of folks were like, how are you working with Jay-Z? You know, this is what he's saying. And this is where he's from. And I was like, and I've always been this way. I was like, how do you expect our Malcolm Littles to become our Malcolm X if nobody's mm. around? How do you expect our Cassius Clays to become Muhammad Ali if you don't allow for them to evolve? Some of them may fall yeah. off, but a lot of them actually will evolve. And so to your point of watching him now and, you know, and to see a lot of things he's done, particularly when he was, um, you know, when he went to Cuba and he was advocating uh, to set the blockade and there's a number of things in regards to move for black lives. And clearly uh, he shows when you marry a good woman, yeah, 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 yeah. Evolving can happen much faster too. <laughs> Shout out to Woman Power, one thousand. I think that as good as he is on as far as democracy, I think that Sister Beyonce is a thousand times better. You know, sorry Jay, but that's 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 like real facts <laughs> um, in that regard. Fighting for the people, but I bring that up though because you mentioned something that the the thing though is that this, there are systems that don't allow the Jays, the Beyonce's, the Diddy's, the whoever gets to that level are very rare, are very rare. What we are talking about in the system is how do we make sure that more people survive what is intended for almost like genocide? Yes. So when we're talking about, for instance, I can't breathe, you're talking about Eric Garner as an example. Eric Garner, who said, I can't breathe before George Floyd said it. Um, and we didn't learn. Unfortunately, we didn't learn much from when Eric Garner said it to when George Floyd said it. But the thing, though, is that when Eric Garner died, 
and was murdered, his community in New York received an F for air quality. And then when I began to look closer and work with the Garner family, I realized that almost everybody in his family had asthma. And then when I looked a little closer, I realized that, you know, 68% of Black people live within 30 miles of a cold fire power plant causing asthma, emphysema, and cancer. Mm -hmm. And then you realize that Erica Garner, who then was in her 20s of the fight for her father, Eric Garner, died because of an asthma-induced heart attack. You then realize that there are a lot of people in our community who ain't making it. So I agree. Well, Mm -hmm. poverty in those situations, make if you can survive it, it makes you better. But I'm also just so concerned that our community isn't allowed to evolve. In other words, mm. our our Trayvons aren't allowed to become Elons, right? And so they're not allowed to go through what they need to go through to, to get to that point. And I think that's the other thing we got to stop is that how do we mm-hmm. stop our community from being literally killed? I wanted to ask about this and you're, you're starting to give some examples that help with this. Our, our mutual friend, Brett Fleischman, who's at 350.org introduced us and said that you have played such an important part of directing the, the climate change movement towards the climate justice movement. And I have to admit when it, it, there's a part of my brain that thinks about social justice and climate change as, as separate categories. Um, can you, help me continue to weave those two together and understand how we are all not outside of that problem yeah. because I think that needs to land in our bones. <laughs> well, first you have to understand that, that the, the reason why that unweaving took place was intentional, unfortunately. Mm. The modern day environmental movement, I mean, so it's two parts of the environmental movement. There is the conservation movement, which doesn't have a great history with our indigenous sisters and brothers. Um, in other words, b- building parks and monuments. And thank goodness that okay. C- Sierra Club has has done some good work to to combat that. But that's what that was. In other words, they they felt that this little bit about the conservation movement. The conservation movement was what we want to create these parks and we're going to build it on reservations and through Indian territory. That was a, and we're going to create oh. land. So that was the whole idea back then, the conservation movement. Moving forward, though, right around 1968, 1967, and 1969 was the birth of the modern-day environmental movement. And so the the environmental movement is then created. And most of your large green organizations, from the League of Conservation Voters, uh, National Resources Defense Council, NRDC, Greenpeace, Rainforest Action Network, uh, Union of Concerned Scientists, most of those organizations are created around this time. Now, this is also the time when the first Earth Day, so that's kind of your, your, your pin. If you want to pin a date on it, your first Earth Day, which was created in April 22nd, 1970, that is when that appears. So that's the birth. And that's also the creation of the EPA and so forth and so on. What's mm. important about that is that also during that time, if you know, in 1968, 1968-1970, there's also a time when the Black Power Movement is going on. Dr. King had just been assassinated. There's a powerful uh, gay rights movement that is that is emerging, um, that is happening. There's a powerful women's rights movement that's happening. There's a powerful anti-Vietnam 
movement that is happening. Uh, and all these things are going on at that time. But the environmental movement at that moment doesn't want to be aligned with the streets. It says that we are going to stay in the suites as a movement mm. and not go into the streets. So that was a tactical, important movement. We're going to try to create things through legislation and policy. And they did. We had the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and a number of policies. But there was also a siloing. So you created a siloed progressive movement at the very beginning in which white people, in particular those on the East Coast and the West Coast, um, I like to say kind of Birkenstock is to be kind of kind, but but they then began to say that we are going to stay away from anything that is activist. So if, if you begin to do it, if it's, if it's black power, we're going to stay away. If it's Palestine, we're going to stay away. If it's anything that's going on for poverty, we're going to stay away. If it's Police brutality, we're going to stay away. And so they begin to stay away. And that continued even when the environmental justice movement, which then emerges in 1980. So out of mm. North Carolina and Warren County, uh, they're building a landfill. Dr. Ben Chavis, I used to work with, with Russell Simmons, uh, who's been head of NWCP, actually coined the phrase from racism. Uh, they began to rise up and say, hey, you know, you're not going to be putting this pollution in our community. Our communities are not going to be sacrifice zones. Our communities mm-hmm. are not going to be the path of least resistance. But even then, the violence movement kind of moved that to the side. And so it was intentional. Mm-hmm. This comes full circle because now the reality where we are is that our planet, and our, well, not our planet, but for us living on our planet, literally now is at stake. And that movement that's been around for 50 years now, which is now predominantly white, doesn't have the capacity, never did have the capacity, because you need a movement that has everybody in it, black, white, brown, red, male, female, straight, gay, theist, atheist, human. You need a human movement to take on this battle to fight for our planet. And so a silo, segregated, predominantly white, class-driven movement would never be a movement of a phosphate industry that is entrenched worldwide and has the most money of anything in the world. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden, unfortunately, through privilege, white people will figure out that they literally cannot be someone who has more privilege than them. And so here they are asking and saying, well, we need help. Well, to be mm-hmm. honest, black, brown, and these people are saying, well, we don't really, we, we've been dying for a minute. And so, and we know how treacherous and how vicious they can be by putting their pipelines in our community and putting their, yeah. their landfills and, and all those things in our, in our community. And so then when you have, that was a moment in which people like me and many others are now saying that we need to fight for everybody, but particularly you got to fight for those who have been put in sacrifice zones and raise it up. So the, mm. the environmental movement is now at a crossroads, to be honest, mm. really at a crossroads. And it was there at a moment now, where they now have to say for years, for years, we decided to silo, our, silo ourselves away from the progressive movement. But now we're in a moment now when we yeah. need everybody. So now they, now they, had to, they had to go through a lot to go through. So now they need to rechange their organizations because to be honest, they not to say that, hey, we can't do this with having orgs that are 90% all white. We, we, we've been marketing this stuff 
for a certain kind of, it's, it's created its own culture. That's one of the things that's important. I guess people always say, Rev, mm-hmm. how did you know that, Rev? I know culture. And people would always say to me, how did you understand that from the very beginning? I said, because they would, even when I first came into this movement, the kind of movement would say, oh, we want culture. We want this. We want that. But then I would say, no, you already have a culture. There is that. Now, listen, I like Patagonia. I like North Face. I like outdoors, man. I like, I like all that. That's cool. It's cool gear. But it's a culture within being a climate person. And in that culture, that kind of, you know, that way, that culture is the void of justice. And so now we're at a moment mm. where we're fighting for humanity. Like literally, our parents in the 20th century fought for equality. And we're definitely still fighting for equality. But right now in the 21st century, us and our kids are not only fighting for equality, but they're fighting for existence. Like literally, our kids are literally fighting to live. 50 Mm. years from now, our children and our children's children are going to live in a world if we don't make changes that will be horrific. It is already a bad situation right now from wildfires and droughts. But for them, can you imagine what this world would look like if we continue on this path? It will be chaos. They will be, and, and I don't want that for myself or for the next generation. And particularly knowing what happens to poor people and black people, I know what it looks like for them. And so that is the reason why now justice has to be at the center of the climate conversation. Like it or not, but here we are. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. It's, it's kind of funny because what's kind of for me is we were I was talking to a colleague the other day about the coronavirus and they were saying how surprised it was that all of these injustices are being seen now. And I said, you know, one of the gifts that the coronavirus did for us was the um, illumination of situations that were already present, you know? And you just spoke about um, wildfires and droughts. And when I think of, of my role in this fight for humanity, I'm thinking about healthcare. And so individuals, indigenous individuals, BIPOC community have been in pandemic for generations. Probably since the the inception of this country, people of color have been in a pandemic, you know? And so I think we have to pivot right now and see that supremacy is by design. We're fighting for our, our, our children's future. What are we going to do? Continue to see and not act? Or continue and continue to have great knowledgeable um, articles put out and not do anything about it, or create plans, legislation. Talk to individuals like yourself who are in the fight. You, you spoke of culture. That's what I fight for every day. I, I see myself as a cultural cultural shifter. You know, I, I, I see myself as an artist when it comes to to medicine. I see you as an artist when it comes to climate change because artists think differently. Like you said earlier. I see Emily as, as an artist, as, as she's using her privilege to, to, to elevate the future, you know? So all of the artists on this call and all the artists in the world have a responsibility in my mind, in my mind, to make sure that we illuminate, we speak about, we, we, we understand, and we take those actionable steps for the future of humanity. Because what are the options at this point? And that's right. what I'm thinking about right now. Rev, as, as we're winding towards the end of this conversation, could you could you help us with 
both some ideas around mobilizing communities through grassroots efforts, and then specifically around like the, <laughs> what can we do? You know, uh, you've spoken about fossil fuels a few, a few times and would love to just hear some, yeah, what can we do? <laughs> yeah. How can we do well, it well? <laughs> yeah. Well, the one thing we can do, and I'll say this, is never forget that organized people beats organized money every single time. So the first thing mm-hmm. is know that we can win. That's that. That's a mm-hmm. fact. And every time we come together, we have won. We've won for on numerous occasions. And so one instance you mentioned an example of that for me was la- last year on the day after Independence Day on July 5th, we had one of the, the greatest victories we had gotten. The Atlantic Coast Pipeline was canceled. And that was such an important victory because uh, there's two powerful forces. There was the, the powerful North Carolina Energy Company, which is uh, Duke, and the powerful Virginia Energy Company, which is Dominion. They came together to build this pipeline throughout that region. But what we learned from that was that people came together. So people in West Virginia and Virginia, uh, Maryland, uh, throughout North Carolina, all came together, black and white, rich and poor, all kind of backgrounds came together in solidarity to fight that. So the first thing to win is that we first, we got to break the silos. If we break the silos within our own movement, we can win. The second thing, using that as an, as an example, is that using privilege. I think that one thing about is using resources. What why that was so important is that people were really willing to share, not just share, but give resources and say, hey, I have this. I'm not going to give you a quarter out of my $100,000, but I'm going to give you half of what I have to fight because we're in this together. Back to that solidarity point. So the mm-hmm. second thing is that if folks who have privilege, who have resources, who have infrastructure can begin to share those and use those in a way that that, that not isn't a vertical, but a horizontal kind of atmosphere, then we can begin to see things change. That's the second thing. The third thing in that is that this is actually the kind of the the piece is that know that these battles are not battles that will be won in one day. And so Mm. these are long-term fights, whatever the fight is. And so you have to prepare yourself. You have to make sure your mind is right. Your, your spirit is right. I think a lot of my young folks that I work with, that if you are pulling on yourself, if you have nothing outside of yourself that you can pull on, for me, it's my faith. But if you don't, if for you, it might be something else. But if you don't have anything out, outside yourself to pull on, then you will consume yourself. You mm. cannot do justice work if you are cynical, if you are bitter, if you are jaded. It is impossible. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. have to fix yourself. You, have to align, you, need, you must get that, that good medicine that we've been talking about to mm-hmm. fix yourself so you can be right for this fight. If you aren't right, just like you are, uh, if, you, if your car was damaged, you can't put that car on the road. If you're damaged, you can't do justice fight. You have to go get yourself fixed before you get into the fight. Take that time. Self-care is a revolutionary act. And so take that time. And then the last thing I'll say for us to be, to, to win, to me, ultimately is love. I think that this year, you know, we had a winter storm in Texas. 
which showed energy poverty and the problems of energy justice. And it showed our grid and many other problems too as well. And while folks were trying to go to Cancun, uh, we saw people were left behind. Yeah. And we and we saw that the energy companies were celebrating because they made more money than ever through that crisis. Mm-hmm. We also saw that there were five-year-olds and 11-year-olds and nine-year-olds who literally froze to death and died in their bed while their mothers were screaming and their fathers didn't know what to do. That ain't the kind of world we want to live in, y'all. And so we got we to have a word of love. And I believe that love conquers all. And I think that we have to, even, even means that we got to put our body against the gears of machine to bring it to a halt. We got to do it. If it means that even our life that we love so much is not as long as we want it to be or as rich, or but we are giving it and all for the next generation, we got to do it. So that's why I think those are the things we got to do. Um, and if we do those things, then we can win. If not, then the goal of simply having clean air and clean water and a world where we can not have racism and a world where we're not trying to kill each other will continue. And that world is not a world that I think we want to leave to our children. Mm, damn. It's sobering. <laughs> it's sobering and yeah. aligning. It remind what you've spoken of reminds me of like, an AA model, right? Where we're like all kind of addicted to this world of extracting from the planet relentlessly and plowing over whatever happens and creating all these situations that need to be repaired and to pull ourselves out of that aligning with a higher, you know, a higher power. I think this is how they talk about it in AA to get our, you know, our world on a path to recovery. Are you hopeful? Yeah, I'm very hopeful. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, no, I got to be. No, I'm I'm super hopeful. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. I'm sitting there talking to you, <laughs> and and I mean, I have seen. You know, we we have seen so many opportunities in the past where folks have overcome. I mean, this is the big one. I mean, we have a time clock. I mean, it's like we our challenge is great, but I think that we've overcome so many things. I'm not naive though. I'm clear. I'm I'm very wide-eyed to what the consequences could be. I'm very clear. And I'm very clear that we don't, if we don't move, I'm very clear what can happen. Um, I'm seeing it right now, what's happening. So mm-hmm. I'm super clear, but I'm also I'm very hopeful. Now nah, I'm super hopeful. Like I said mm-hmm. before, I believe in people. I believe in the power of people. No doubt yeah. about it. I see, I see people win every single time. And so mm-hmm. I, I, and I don't think it's going to start losing with us. Mm. Yeah. How can our listeners stay connected to you and support your ongoing works? There's something that they can join up with. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Really yeah. enjoyed this time. Hope y'all enjoyed having me talk a little bit. No, I appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, Hip hop caucus. We do that. They actually do some great work. I, I, I'm just still around. You know, it's, they, they pretty much run. It's pretty much millennials and Gen Z. They just let me hang around because I grandfathered in. So they just make sure I have health insurance and I get to stay in the corner. But uh, but, uh, but 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 they 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 do amazing work. And so I'm with them. So if you go to think100climate 
Facebook.com, they have like a whole platform, how they, how they are attacking the crisis. Again, using the cultural expression, Sigma's political experience. So they use, they, they have podcasts like this. They have uh, radio shows. They have, uh, they're creating documentaries, they're different documentaries. They, they, create, they just created a, a climate comedy documentary. That was at mm. the, so they, they're using comedy, you know, as a way to engage and broaden the movement. Um, they're, using, they, they're using music. So they have an album that came out that was with Common and Neo and Crystal mm. Waters and others. So super dope called Home, Heal Our Mother Earth. Came out, came out a few years back, but it's it's this really dope stuff they do there, and they're doing activism. So you mm-hmm. know, all these pipeline fights, they still right there, like Mountain Valley Pipeline, Line Three, Bahia Pipeline in Memphis. So doing really good work. So go there, or if you just, if you want if you if you don't want to do climate stuff, they do other stuff. Let's go hiphopcaucus.org. You want to do stuff around uh, civil human rights? They right there in the fight in that aspect. If you want to do things around economic empowerment, they right there in that fight. If you want to do things uh, around democracy, around some of all these voter suppression laws that are going crazy, they, they're oh right gosh. there in that fight. So, you know, mm-hmm. they, so Hip Hop Caucus is, is great, doing great, great work in that aspect. And I just think that, uh, you know, they have a, a, a We Shall Breathe Summit and also they do a lot of work they got coming up. So this, yeah, just go there, check it out. And then, yeah, and just get involved. And, and if you're an artist, I'll just say this to artists as we as we close. I just say, if you're an artist, there's never a time when you are more needed right now than now. If there's mm-hmm. ever a time when you feel your art was needed, you're right. Because right now is the time, if ever is the time, to save this planet. It will only be safe if our artists tell the story, mm. if they don't, if they don't do that, we ain't going to make it. Mm. Man, they call you, they call you rare for, for a reason. Cause you preached this whole, this whole episode. Man. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, thank <laughs> you for having me. I appreciate y'all. Thank oh, you man. so Thanks much. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.